see Allie there. We'll hear from you maybe next week. Um, just you know, thankful for the work that that uh, that Jacob uh, that you did in in New Orleans. I saw where the latest census data has come out, um, and it said that basically the top um, the top 50 counties that grew over the last 10 years are counties where there is a major metropolitan city or it's a county that's next to a major metropolitan city. And so what that communicates is, is that, you know, the big cities are getting bigger. Um, so we need uh, more healthy gospel churches uh, going into those cities. Now, you know, over the next 10 years, we may see something different because, you know, you talk to people and they'll say people are leaving the city, you know, moving into rural places. But I know for, for Kentucky, um, the, the top 10 counties that, that lost, um, that, that decreased in population were like those counties in eastern Kentucky. Uh, my point is, is Jesus loves the city and Jesus loves uh, rural areas and, and we need healthy churches uh, in all those places. So um, I'm, I'm excited what's going on in New Orleans, man. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to have you back. So if you want, go ahead and open up Mark chapter uh, 11. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11 this morning. And we're going to be looking at verses, um, going to be looking at verses 12 to 25. Uh, we may revisit verses 20 to 25 next week. Um, we'll see how it goes this morning. But Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. Um, you know, we're going to read an account uh, of Jesus cursing a fig tree. And Jesus causes quite a commotion in the Jerusalem temple. And, you know... Historically speaking, uh, but definitely for me this week, this has been a very difficult passage to understand. And most commentators uh, will say the same thing. Some people have actually even been led astray uh, by these passages and, and the, the difficulty in trying to understand them. Several commentators and scholars have noted that this is the most challenging um, the most challenging passage to interpret and to understand in the Gospel of Mark. And, and I, I would definitely agree with them uh, after preparing this week. You know, the Gospel of Luke doesn't even include this passage. And I'd love to ask Luke, you know, did you just leave it out because it was so hard to understand. It's a difficult passage. It's also a strange and unusual passage. Jesus acts in a way that, that we are not used to him acting. He does a couple things here that we know uh, that, that we're not supposed to do. He curses and he gets angry, right? Um, he does both of these things. This passage really seems to cast our Savior uh, in a negative light. You know, the, the Gospel of Thomas, uh, it's not a real gospel. It's, 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 a, it's a book that was written way after the life of Jesus, and it has a lot of bad teachings in it. You know, there's some things that Jesus does in that book, and historically scholars and theologians have said, you know, we're going to reject the Gospel of Thomas because it portrays Jesus acting in a way that the other Gospels don't portray him acting, right? Uh, it ha has him, you know, like one time it, in the Gospel of Thomas, it has him pointing his finger up in the sky and striking down a bird, and, and that's just kind of silly behavior, and Jesus doesn't act like that. Uh, so, you know, first glance, you see this. Uh, this morning in Mark 11, you see Jesus' behavior, and like, 
We've never really seen him act like that before. Uh, you, you could kind of think, you know, is he being petty here? Is he being vindictive? Uh, is, he, is he being easily irritated? And, and, and there was this famous atheist that I, that I was reading about this week uh, who commented on this passage. His name was Bertrand Russell, and he wrote this essay, on, and, and the essay was entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. He actually used this passage that we'll be uh, reading today as part of the reason for why he rejected Jesus and Christianity. And this is what he said in the essay. He said, Then there is this curious story of the fig tree, which always rather puzzled me. This is a very curious story because it was not the right time of year for figs, and you really could not blame the tree. He said, I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue. And now listen to this. This is what he says. Christ stands quite as high as some other people known to history. I think I should put Buddha and Socrates above those respects, above him in those respects. So, so he, he read this passage and, went and said, well, I should put Buddha and Socrates above Jesus. Pretty extreme. Um, so we have a little bit of work to do today to understand this. We need to make sure that, that we put our thinking caps on and that you know, we bring our hermeneutical A game to make sure that we correctly interpret uh, and that we also correctly apply this passage uh, to our lives. So, so let's read Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he, and he is Jesus there, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sowed and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sowed pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priest and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you of your trespasses. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, God, we just want to thank you for bringing us here this morning, and we ask uh, that you would help us understand this passage, sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So but before we jump into the particulars 
uh, of this account, we need to discuss a couple of items on the front end. I think if we take a little bit of time to look at these bigger issues, it will help us walk uh, it will help us as we walk through it. So first, let's recall a stylistic feature of Mark's gospel. And, and we've seen this done uh, throughout Mark's gospel. And we talked about it back in the spring. If you remember, Mark likes to create what some people call sandwich stories. So Mo what Mark will do is, uh, is he will begin a story and then he will, um, in he will interpret his first story with a second story. And once the second story is finished, he will come back and he will finish um, the first story that he began. So he creates one sandwich from two stories. We might conclude from that that Mark is one of these guys that gets real easily distracted, but that's, that's not what's going on here. Mark has a very intentional purpose for doing this. Uh, the reason that he does this with two stories is um, these two stories mutually interpret and relate to one another. That's why he, he tells these sandwich stories. They, they build off of each other. They sort of have this relationship where one interprets the other and the other interprets the first. So the cursing of the fig tree, which functions as the two slices of bread on the outside and the cleansing uh, of the temple functions as like the meat on the inside. They express one central idea though. They both uh, express one main theme uh, and that is that they are both pictures of Israel's faithlessness and Israel's future judgment. They express or they communicate Israel's faithlessness and Israel's future judgment. The second thing is in the previous passage, if you were here last week or if you were tuned in on the live stream last week, you will recall that Jesus is revealed to us as a king. He's revealed to us as a, as a divine king. He's no ordinary man. Jesus is not an average Joe. He's no ordinary man. He is God in the flesh. He possessed supernatural insight. Uh, he has divine ability to know exactly um, how things are. He has supernatural ability to know exactly how things will be. He can predict the future. He knows the future. He has the ability to speak things and they come to pass. They come to fruition. He is God. He is a divine king. We also saw that Jesus is a humble king. And this is why he, this is why he, um, this is why he selected a lowly donkey to ride in, in, in Jerusalem on, to communicate his accessibility, his lowliness, his humility, his approachability. Anybody can go to Jesus. No matter what you've done this week, no matter what you've thought this week, uh, not only can you go to Jesus uh, and feel confident that he'll receive you, you should go to Jesus. You should do that today. Other kings, uh, they're used to riding in on chariots uh, with horses driving them. Uh, we said last week, uh, Mark Antony, he was a Roman general that rode in on a chariot with lions driving him. But Jesus chose a baby donkey uh, that would typically be ridden by a child. Why? To communicate his humility. We also saw that Jesus is a saving king, that he came into Jerusalem not to overthrow the Roman government, uh, not to free people from from political oppression, first and foremost, but ultimately to free people from their sin. And once we all get freed from our sin, there's a day where there will be no more political oppression, right? So we're not saying we don't care about that, but we're saying that what Jesus is going to do is it's ultimately going to take care of that, all right? Jesus came to bring people 
um, salvation in an eternal sense, not just a temporary sense, not just for the next 20 years of their life here on earth, but for eternity. So this is why he came to Jerusalem to die, to bring salvation uh, to, to sinners just like us. So in the previous passage, he is presented to us as a king. But in this passage, he's going to be presented to us as a prophet. All right, he's going to be presented to us as a prophet. And that is to say he functions as an Old Testament prophet in this passage. And one of the ways that prophets communicated God's message is by using visual aids. Um, they would use these divinely instituted props. And they would oftentimes act out their message as to what would occur. This is a very tangible way for them to forcefully express and communicate God's message. Now, let me just give you a few examples of these. The, the, the technical term for this is prophetic sign acts. All right, prophetic sign acts. So let me remind you of a few of these prophetic sign acts that occur in other parts of the Bible, specifically in the Old Testament. If you recall, Isaiah chapter 20, he walked around naked and barefoot. It seems kind of weird. Um, probably, probably wasn't completely naked, uh, but he was definitely down to his skivvies. Um, because he was symbolizing the, the stripping that was going to occur against the Egyptians. He stripped down, and, and he's saying to the Egyptians, he's saying, you're going to be stripped, you're gonna, everything's going to be taken away from you, you're going to go into exile. This very same thing that I'm acting right now, with everything being taken from me and away from me, this is going to happen to you. The prophet Jeremiah, he strapped a very heavy wooden yoke around his neck. Uh, a yoke was a piece of farming equipment uh, that was placed on farming animals. And he did this to send a shocking message to Judah about their future enslavement. Um, he's saying, you see this giant yoke that I have on my neck, that's going to be you in a matter of time because of your, um, because of your disobedience. Ezekiel had to do a lot of crazy things as well. He was required to cook his food uh, over feces. Uh, God told him to cook his food over human excrement. I use that instead of the P word, if you can go there with me. Uh, Ezekiel is, you know, he's, Ezekiel's saying, you know, Lord, I can't do that. I, I can't cook my food uh, over what you're trying to get me to cook my food over. I can't do it. And the Lord says, all right, I won't make you do that, but I will make you cook it over animal excrement. All right. Uh, a, I've been practicing saying that word. So why does he do that? Why does he do that? This was to communicate to God's people, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, that they were going to be exiled. And in exile, guess what? They are going to have to eat unclean food. So, so you see how these prophets, you, they, they use these, these props to communicate. So Ezekiel, he is eating unclean food, and he's communicating that they were going to eat unclean food in a matter of time. Remember Hosea? Hosea had to marry a cheating prostitute because this was a prophetic image of Israel's unfaithfulness to the Lord and their commitment to their idolatrous tendencies. The Lord is saying, you know what it's like being in covenant with you? You know what that's like? Because you were so unfaithful, it's like marrying an unfaithful prostitute, which I think that's amazing because it's not like God, he didn't divorce us, right? So there's, a, there's something else to be said about that uh, in his faithfulness and his love for us. But, but that, that's not the point here. So you can just imagine that being an Old Testament prophet was not a dream job. 
with the stuff that they had to do. You didn't sign up for this. You literally had to be called for this because no one wanted to be a prophet. But here's the point. One commentator says, God would sometimes have his prophets to add to their word a visible sign in order to awaken people's minds to a more serious consideration of the matters proposed to them. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing. He is acting like a prophet in order to communicate the, seri the seriousness and the severity of his message. So here's the main idea. Jesus acts out these two parables in order to forcefully communicate that Israel has failed to produce the spiritual fruit required of God's people. And as a result, they will suffer under God's judgment. So what we are going to do is we're going to uh, look at each of these prophetic sign acts and we are going to learn something about Jesus as well as something about ourselves, hopefully. So here, but here's the thing, though. Every single one of you is in danger right now. All right. We're all in danger right now. Um, and, and this is why you're in danger. Uh, because it's very tempting to think, you know, I'm not a first century Jew living in Palestine. How's this fig tree and how's this, you know, temple cleansing parable? How's this have anything to do with me, right? It's very tempting to say that this message is not relevant to us. Um, but, but if you're saying that or you're thinking that, then you could not be further from the truth. This is not only a message that was intended for first century Jews living in Palestine, but it's a message intended for us here at Trinity Fellowship Church today. It's a message for each of us. So let's tune in and if, if we have ears to hear, right? So here, here, here's the first prophetic sign act. The first prophetic sign act is cursing the fig tree. So here's what we learn. Jesus expects fruit from those who identify as God's people. Jesus expects fruit from us if we identify with him. Right? So the morning after Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, we learn that he is hungry. So he decides to grab some breakfast from a nearby fig tree. Mark tells us two times, notice that, two times if you look uh, at your passage, verses uh, 12 through 14, he tells us two times that the fig tree has a lot of leaves, which is meant to emphasize that it gave the impression that it would be full of fruit. If a tree has a lot, if a fruit tree has a lot of leaves, you would expect it to have a lot of fruit. But when Jesus came to the tree, he found nothing but leaves. And this is meant to communicate something. There is a discrepancy between the tree's appearance being very leafy uh, and its true condition being fruitless, right? So in response, Jesus, he curses the fig tree and he did so loud that it says uh, in, the, in verse 14 that the disciples heard him. Right. Uh, so a lot of people comment on this and they poke fun of Jesus. They say, you know, why is he talking to a tree? Well, he's talking to the tree, but he's also talking to the disciples because they heard him. And he's also talking to us. He wants everyone around him uh, to hear him say the words. May no one e ever eat fruit from you again. Right. And then they take off that they, they, they spend their afternoon at the temple. And we'll talk about that scene shortly. Um, but then the next morning, the disciples stroll past this fig tree, and, and, and they are befuddled, right? They're, they're, they're amazed. They're astonished because in a matter of hours, the fig tree withered from uh, the roots up. And, and this means that, that the fig tree wasn't just struggling 
Um, it, it's not dying. It is dead. The fig tree is dead. And there is only one thing left that you can use this fig tree for, and that is to be collected and thrown into the fire. It's interesting. This is actually the last miracle that Jesus performs in the Gospel of Mark, except for his resurrection. Um, and, and it's the only miracle in all the Gospels that's a miracle of destruction. All other miracles that Jesus performs are miracles of restoration. Uh, whether he gives sight to a blind man, whether he heals a paralytic, whether he casts out a demon, um, th th those are all acts of restoration. But this miracle is an act of judgment. So the question that, that we need to ask is, is why did he do this? Why did he do this, this miracle that's an act of judgment? And we need to remember that Jesus is never not teaching. Jesus, it says Jesus was teaching. Jesus will never waste one syllable or, or, or one action. He is communicating something incredibly important to his disciples and to us. And this is his purpose. This leafy but fruitless tree represents Israel and it symbolizes the hypocrisy which is going to be more fulfilled in the temple. So Jesus is declaring through his actions um, that Israel is ripe for judgment. Later on in chapter 13, and we'll get there at some point, this is sort of the climax between Jesus and the religious leaders. Jesus is going to predict the invasion and the downfall of Jerusalem. And he's going to predict the complete destruction of this temple that, that, that we're talking about and looking at right here, which we know from history that ultimately was fulfilled in 70 AD, just a few decades after Jesus made this prediction. So Jesus has turned right here a search for a snack into a lesson on faith faithfulness and fruitfulness and we want to ask the question what in the world is going on in this last part of verse 13 if you look down there with me it says the last part of verse 13 for it was not the season for figs and we say hey isn't this a little irrational uh, for Jesus to expect figs when they're not even in season? You know, what's up with that? I spent some of my time trying to figure that out this week. Um, and this, this was Bertrand Russell's issue, the atheist that, that I read from earlier. And the answer is no. Jesus is not being irrational. When we understand what, what Mark, it, it, the author, uh, his intention, uh, Mark throughout the gospel will often include parenthetical comments like this one. And he always does so by introducing it with the word for. Look at that, look at that word for, F-O-R. And, and, and what he is intending to do is draw the reader's in attention into a deeper symbolic scriptural reading. This is Mark's way of flagging our attention and encouraging us to be more mindful of the Old Testament. Mark doesn't use footnotes, but if he did use footnotes, there would certainly be a footnote here. And if we looked at that footnote and dropped our eyes at the bottom of the page, Mark's footnote would include two scriptures scriptural references. Uh, the first one would be from Jeremiah chapter 8. In Jeremiah 8, the Lord compares Israel to, here it is, a fig tree. And he announces the downfall of the corrupt leadership in Jerusalem. And this is what he says. This is verse 12 of Jeremiah 8. They, 
um, the, that is, the they is the corrupt leadership in Jerusalem. They shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Uh, when I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Or in, in what I gave them, talking about the temple, right? What I gave them, talking about the land, the inheritance, right? Uh, what I gave them has passed away. Or the other passage that Mark would be referencing is Micah 7. Micah the prophet, verse 1 says, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered. As when, the groups have, as when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. So here, Micah is like Jesus. He's, he's depicted as a hungry person looking for fruit from a fig tree, but he doesn't find any. And fruit in this context um, were those people who were faithful, who, who were upright, who were loyal to Yahweh. Um, so this is not some temper tantrum that, that Jesus throws against the tree. No, this is a prophetic image to teach the disciples and us about the necessity of producing fruit in our lives. Now, if, if you're worried about what happened to this tree, uh, one commentator says, in actuality, Jesus honored that tree. Uh, he, uh, this was Kent Hughes. He said, he makes it the most useful tree that ever grew. He says, it was and is a tree from which thousands, uh, perhaps millions, have learned something about themselves and turned back to God. He, he says, the best tree ever. Um, it's a useful tree. So what can we learn from this tree? Well, we learn that Jesus expects fruit from those who claim um, identity as God's people. Right? We also learn that it is a very dangerous thing to have the appearance of being devoted to God and belonging to God, but failing to do what God expects and requires of us. It, it's a very dangerous thing to do that. There are a lot of different kinds of spiritual fruit that we can and should be cultivating. For example, authentic worship is a fruit. Uh, so the fact that you're actually here and, and, and you, uh, you are present and you are engaged and you are participating in the songs and the prayers and you're participating in the word when it's read you are listening and your heart is in it that's a fruit uh, the spirit of God produces that in you <clears throat> prayer is a fruit uh, a commitment and devotion to scripture and sound theology is a fruit a commitment to your neighbor and to the nations to sharing the gospel and living it out that's a fruit right but some fruit that but, but a fruit that i want us to consider is repentance have you ever thought of repentance as a fruit uh, that jesus expects expects of you he anticipates that fruit in your life in matthew chapter 3 john the baptist he reminds us that we are to bear fruit in keeping with repentance um, you know, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian isn't that non-Christian sin and we don't, uh, like we got our act together, that like that we got our act together and others don't. That's not the difference. The difference between the two is that um, Christians, we sin 
But Christians, we are to be repentant sinners. Now, that's the kind of sinner that we are. We are not comfortable in our sin, or we shouldn't be. <clears throat> We're not to delight in our sin. We're not to take joy in our sin. We're supposed to feel conviction in our sin. And as a result, we confess it to God and to others, and we turn from it. And we ask God to help us to not pursue that sin anymore. That's repentance, uh, and that's what Christians do. Repentance isn't you know, just one decision that you make at the beginning of your Christian life. Um, repentance is a way of life for the Christian. It's a fruit that we must continually and constantly cultivate and harvest in our lives if we're going to be faithful. And so my question then to us is in what ways or areas do you need to exercise repentance? What, um, what, where are you leafy green but, but lacking fruit? You know, for me, uh, one of the areas in which I need to repent is, is the area of, of fear and worry. I have been worrying a lot lately. You know, my, my son has started school. Uh, you know, we got this church, and, and, it, and it's young, but it's like it, we've been here a year. Uh, so it's like we need to take the next step. You know, we need to keep growing. Uh, so I have been worrying a lot. And you may think, you know, because I stand up here every week and preach that I don't. Um, but there's many things that I'm afraid of and many things that I worry about. Fear of man, fear of failure, fear of being you know, a bad husband or a bad father, lots of worry and fear. And so in an effort to try to just fight that, um, I've been trying to memorize a couple psalms uh, to combat that. I'm also trying to cultivate gentleness in my life by doing that. So in what ways or, or, or what areas do you need to exercise repentance? Maybe, maybe take a moment to confess all of that to God uh, when we're responding in song uh, here in a moment. Uh, first prophetic sign act was cursing the fig tree. The second prophetic sign act was clearing the temple. And what we learn is we should expect Jesus to judge those who identify as God's people but fail to produce fruit. So after Jesus cursed the fig tree, he and his disciples make their way to the temple. The temple was, was this magnificent spectacle and functioned as the heart or the epicenter of Israel's religious life. It symbolized their identity as God's people. Um, so nothing could compare the nothing could compare the disciples or prepare the disciples for what was going to occur when Jesus arrived because this place is like a place that they admired, right? So so read with me verse fifteen. <clears throat> they, and they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sowed and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sowed pigeons. And he could not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem the day before, he traveled to the temple uh, and inspected it. Uh, look up at verse 11. We didn't read that today. We looked at it last week. We didn't talk about it much. Uh, but it's kind of a climactic way to end uh, Jesus' triumphal entry. Jesus finally arrives. He went to Jerusalem. He went into the temple. Um, and what did he do? He looked around at everything. He examined. He inspected the temple to see if it was fulfilling its purpose in leading people to worship God. And it wasn't. 
Um, and what this means is that his actions the next day, they weren't just spur of the moment. He had already thought about this. He had already seen it, examined it. He had already considered what he was going to do. This isn't some sort of unusual, unanticipated, flying off the handle act of aggression. No, this is premeditated. This is a calculated effort. Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do. He knew exactly what he was going to do that morning because he knew that what was taking place in the temple was a perversion of its God-intended purpose. And the two issues that provoked Jesus to anger <clears throat> and caused him to go on this righteous rampage were corruption and distractions. See, the religious leaders, they had converted God's temple into this money-making machine. The pilgrims traveling into Jerusalem for the Passover would need an animal sacrifice for the Passover. Now, they could bring their own animal for this, but it would have been pretty inconvenient because you had to travel with it, and, you know, it might get injured. you got to feed it. It might get sick, and it may not be what you need it to be when you get to the temple. Uh, who knows? It, but it's much more uh, convenient to dig into your purse, dig into your wallet, and purchase an animal when you arrive in Jerusalem. It was just more convenient. On top of that, if you purchased it while you were in Jerusalem, you ensured that it was an animal sacrifice without a blemish. Uh, that it was up to the temple code. They were going to sell you animals that you needed, right? And, and the high priest, they got a very large cut uh, from the profit of the people who were selling these animals because the buying and the selling took place in the temple. Very lucrative business. <clears throat> On top of that, the pilgrim had to exchange their Roman currency for currency that was acceptable to be used in the temple. You know, you can't use your Roman coin. Why? Uh, because your Roman coin has a pagan god on it. So you couldn't use that in the temple. Uh, so in order to purchase something, you actually have to go in and exchange your money, and that's where they get you, right? They, they, you give them your Roman coin, and they give you a coin without a pagan god on it. And these money changers would charge outrageous amounts to exchange this money, anywhere from, um, one commentator said, 20 to 25% of a markup. You know, it's similar to like what airlines do. You know, if I go down here to Five Star and I buy a bottle of water, it's like $1.50. If I go into an airport, you know, once I get in the airport, pass, you know, security and all that, I'm hemmed up. If I want a Gatorade, I got to buy from them and it's going to be like $15 or something, right? I mean, that, that's just what they're going to do. They know they got you. Um, so it's exactly, that's exactly what's happening here. And again, the high priest would receive a large cut of all the profit uh, from those money changers. It's a very lucrative business. On top of that, the temple courts had kind of become a shortcut. It was much quicker for people to transport their goods through the temple um, where the Gentiles were at <clears throat> rather than going around the temple the long way. They, they had the market cornered. This is why Jesus would not allow anyone to carry goods through the temple. He's like, look, this, this isn't a shortcut anymore. So the temple then was not a conducive environment to pray, right, or, or, or to worship 
or to contemplate God's goodness. It had lost all of that. Uh, to contemplate God's glory um, and his greatness. So rather being a place of, of worship and a place of prayer, it has become a place of destruction and a place of distractions. And sadly, some churches today have become that. And, and you know, it's my prayer that that would not be so of Trinity Fellowship Church. But instead of displaying God's holiness and his majesty, the temple had become a place that displayed man's sin and man's greed. And Jesus is rightfully outraged. <clears throat> and he intervenes. Now to describe this as a cleansing, I, I, I don't really like that description. Even though that's, that's probably what your heading says above your passage if you look at it. It probably says Jesus cleansing the temple or Jesus cleanses the temple. I think it's a little bit off because I don't think this is necessarily a cleansing of the temple. It's actually the conclusion of the temple. Like the cursing of the fig tree, Jesus is declaring by his actions that the temple is going to be overturned. He came to the temple expecting to find fruit, but he found nothing but leaves. And as a result, he acts on his curse. One commentator really summarized it well. It's a little bit of a lengthy quote, so just bear with me. But I think it's very helpful. Uh, so I hope you can listen. <clears throat> this is what he says. The cursing of the fig tree and the expulsion of the merchants from the temple are prophetic. They're prophetic actions that symbolize the same thing. The coming judgment on unfaithful Israel by the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. Israel, like the fig tree, appeared to be thriving, but appearances were deceiving because Israel and the fig tree were bearing no fruit. The magnificence of the temple masked the corruption and false security associated with it. Just as the fig tree was cursed and withered, so Israel was about to be condemned. Just as the merchants were expelled from the temple, so was the religious establishment that authorized the merchants was about to be expelled from its favorite place. And we know from common sense, as well as the text, uh, these religious leaders were not moved, nor were they impressed with Jesus' actions. Instead, they do not receive the correction. Their hearts were hardened, and they started looking for a way to kill him. And in a matter of days, their, their plan would actually come to fruition. They succeeded in getting Jesus nailed to a Roman cross. Now, there are a lot of things we could say, but here's the observation I do not want you to miss. And this is very important for us to hear. Uh, Jesus will judge you. He, he will judge you. Um, we should and, and we must expect Jesus to judge those who identify as God's people but fail to produce fruit. This is, this is one of the, the encouraging things uh, about a pastor who preaches every week is, you know, I don't get to decide the tone of the message. Um, if, you're, if you preach um, expositionally, uh, the, the, the passage does that, right? The text picks the tone of the message. So some passages, like last week, uh, they encourage and they, and they comfort, and that's their intent, that's their design. But some passages like this one, they confront us and they warn us. And that's a good thing too. You know, I, I want to confront and warn my son. 
you know, if he's doing something he doesn't need to be doing. That's loving. You know, that's not a bad thing. But then there's sometimes where we laugh and we cut up and, you know, I may, I may you know, tell him I love him. But then there's sometimes I say, whoa, stop. Don't do that. You know, uh, that, that, that's what's happening this morning. Jesus is confronting you. He is confronting me. Uh, Jesus is warning you and Jesus is warning me. Uh, he is telling us that fruitlessness leads to judgment. So my question then is, are you just putting on a good show? Am I just putting on a good show? Uh, because if you're just putting on a good show, you know, nobody knows, uh, but Jesus does know. You know, you, you may fool everybody, but, but you're not going to fool Jesus. You know, are, are we being leafy green, uh, but bearing no fruit? If so, don't do what Adam and Eve did, our first parents, which was sew together some fig leaves to try and hide your true condition, the fig leaves of religious activity, uh, of moralism, like I said, might fool us, might convince everybody else, like, you know, hey, they're producing fruit, uh, but, but, you know, we will never fool Jesus. Romans chapter 2 says Jesus knows the secret. He's actually going to judge the secrets uh, of our hearts, right? Um, which in a, so anyways, it, it, at least, you know, don't try to um, fool Jesus with, you know, doing a lot of things, a lot of religious activities. You know, that, that's what Jesus would tell you to do is to repent and believe in the gospel, right? That's what Jesus would tell you to do. He would tell you to turn from your sin. He would tell you to turn from putting on a good show for others to see. He would say, turn to the Savior and trust in him. That's what Jesus would tell you to do. Because here's the good news. Jesus didn't only curse the tree. Jesus actually went to a tree to be cursed for you. Uh, in, 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 in your place. Galatians 3.13 says, uh, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So yes, Jesus is a judge. Jesus is judge, but Jesus is also a savior. And as the savior, he was judged in our place. Uh, on the cross, uh, the, the, the curse for our sin. Um, that was intended for us, it, it fell on Jesus. So if you seek him now through repentance and faith and believing in him, then you can know Christ as Savior right now. That's the good news. This passage is warning and confronting you to know Christ as Savior so you don't have to know him as judge. But if you harden your hearts, if you continue with the facade, if you refuse the invitation to repent and believe because he's inviting us to come to him, then one day you will know him as judge. And that is not a situation that any of us want to be in. So let, 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 me, let me end with this, John chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. And that may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. 
For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Let's abide in Jesus, trust in him, know him as Savior, and bear fruit as his disciples. Let's pray. God, I thank you uh, for the tough passages uh, because these tough passages have much to teach us because Jesus is uh, also a teaching king and and he never wastes one word. He never wastes one syllable or one action. Um, So we thank you for these tough passages that, that, that warn us and confront us to examine our lives, to examine our hearts, Uh, to turn from our sin and to turn to Jesus as our Savior. And I pray that we're doing that. I I pray that when when we are looking uh, at our life, that we are looking at Jesus uh, at the center of it. And we're saying we're living for him, we're trusting in him, and we're hoping in him alone. So let us think about that, consider that. uh, Grant us repentance right now uh, in any aspects of our lives. Uh, conform us and make us look more like you and think more like you uh, as we sing and as we take the Lord's Supper. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.